Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's episode. Before we get into today's episode, I want to give a huge shout out and thank you to our latest patrons, Ben, Trenton, and Abby. Thank you so much for supporting the show. If you too are interested in helping keep the Ocean-tastic episodes coming, head on over to patreon.com slash marinebiolife. For less than a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help support the show that you enjoy. Patreon.com slash marinebiolife. Patreon.com slash marinebiolife. Question. Where was the captain sent after he hit another ship? To anchor management. Did you hear about the blue boat hitting the red one? They were marooned. My guest today knows a thing or two about ships. Rear Admiral Evelyn Fields is the first woman to be in command of a federal ship and the first woman admiral in the NOAA Corps. In today's episode, we cover what exactly the NOAA Corps is and what it means to be a member of the Corps. We also chat about some of the important work that was done aboard Evelyn ships, including seafloor mapping and tuna and dolphin research that later shaped legislation. Please enjoy. We are Admiral Fields. Welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Thank you so much. It's nice to be with you. So you have had quite the distinguished career in the NOAA Corps, and I want to take a moment and just break down what the NOAA Corps is in relationship to NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and does a lot of the sea and atmospheric monitoring in the United States. So could you explain how NOAA Corps relates with NOAA? Sure. The NOAA Corps is one of seven uniformed services. It comes under the Department of Commerce, of which NOAA is a part of. Mm-hmm. We, as uh, the NOAA Corps, operate the ships, the aircraft, and operational activities within NOAA, diving and so forth. Uh, we are responsible for the safety and the operations of um, they're those assets. Gotcha. So what else is part of NOAA Corps? The NOAA Corps has, uh, well, the NOAA Corps itself is a uniform service. Okay. And as part of um, the uniform services, uh, we operate the ships. We drive the ships. We drive the aircraft or fly the aircraft. We provide oversight for those activities. The diving office that NOAA has comes under under not NOAA Corps, but under the operations, because NOAA Corps operates the fleet, and that's their primary responsibility for under NOAA. Gotcha. Okay, so NOAA has the boats, and the Corps drives them. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly the simplistic way to put it. <laughs> okay, I gotcha. I'm with you. But you didn't start your career in NOAA Corps. In fact, you started as a cartographer. So could you explain kind of how that came about and what a cartographer does and what you did? All right. Well, when I graduated college, I, like everybody else in the 70s and even now, was looking for a job and I wanted to have a job that was meaningful. I think most folks coming out of school are still very idealistic. (laughs) And so I was looking for something that I thought could give back or could be um, a good career. One of my friends told me um, that Noah was hiring civilian-wise. So 
I went down and applied for the job and actually got it. So I worked as a civilian for about a year, a little more than a year before going into the NOR Corps. Now, when I went into the NOR Corps, the Corps had just started taking women into its service. Before that, it was only men. And the first woman came in about four months after I got my civilian job. Awesome. What were you doing as a cartographer then? Uh, a cartographer is like a map maker. Ships uh, are the vessels that do the nautical charting go out, they collect data for the nautical charts. And that information, when it comes back to the office, is verified. And then you put it on like a map, the depths of the ocean, so that uh, that's what makes our forms the basis for nautical charts that mm -hmm. people use for navigation. Mm -hmm. And so the nautical charts, it kind of tells you what's going on in the bottom of the ocean as far as being able to navigate through any sort of like shallow areas. And I mean, and you're also looking at, I mean, what else is on the bottom, right? So you have the trenches and you have, I mean, in the shallow sandbars and stuff like that. What are some of the other phenomenons that you kind of mapped out? They would take what we would call uh, bottom samples, mm -hmm. which would be just that uh, samples of the, the seafloor. Mm -hmm. And you would put that on a chart so that you would know whether it was a hard bottom or a sandy bottom, mm -hmm. reefs, and all of the kind of uh, features that could uh, be distinguished on the bottom. Because certainly when you have a, a vessel, you don't want to be dragging or hitting any of that sort of stuff. You don't want to run aground. And that's the whole purpose. Right. So you were creating, you're taking this information that these ships were bringing in and creating these maps. And then the NOAA Corps opened up to women and you decided that you were going to go for it. Yes. A couple of, couple of the folks that I worked for, some of the male officers that I was working for and with suggested that when they started taking women, they said, why don't you apply? Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, why not? Um, <laughs> I guess at, at 23 years old, you kind of go, oh, the whole world is open to you, so why not? Mm -hmm. So I did apply, and obviously I was accepted, and um, off I went to a training class for 10 weeks, and uh, then on to a ship. Amazing. What does training class look like for the NOAA Corps? Is that, like, do you have, and when I think of, like, military, like, boot camp to get to military, do you have to do that, too? Well, we didn't at the time. I think the, the folks now do a little bit of, uh, we would call it physical fitness, not necessarily boot camp. Okay. It's, it's like an officer candidate school, and okay. uh, you, you learn navigation. You take firefighting classes, damage control classes, any kind of, uh, all of the things that you would need to, to um, run a ship effectively and to be able to take care of whatever came up. Because if there was a fire, you know, you don't have a fire department to call. You have to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And any of the other activities that happen, like in your, your normal life, happens on the ship. So you have to be able to um, do whatever repairs and whatever need comes up. So those are the kinds of things that you're learning when you go through the training center. Gotcha. So you are the the fireman, maybe a little bit of mechanic skills, definitely navigation, driving the boat, all sorts of, your whole town onto one boat. That's correct. You're, you're the whole town, <laughs> which is really kind of uh, daunting if you think about it, but 
you know, it's just part of the part of the job and you don't really get too carried away with it. it. You know, you just take things as they come. We do plenty of drills and do plenty of things to make sure that we have the, the right skill base if something were to happen. So now that you're in the core, what was your first deployment? You were you were also I mean, you were going out and collecting these samples for the cartographers to make. Did you did you go out in the field at all as before the core? Uh, actually, I did. I didn't. Uh, it was just a temporary assignment, or I guess you would call it. Uh, I went out on one of the uh, what we called field parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would take the boats out during the day, and they were always in in the evening, unlike the ships. And I went out on one of those field parties, really to just get a sense of. I, I was grateful that the the folks that um, I worked for said, you know, you should go out to one of the field parties so you can not only see what's going on, but, you know, you can see kind of what being a sieve is like and, and what being in the core is going to be like. Mm-hmm. And so I did that. And it was actually interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it kind of gave you a little bit, a little bit of a taste of what it may be like to be out in the core and out, out longer terms. Of yes, the just a, a, a smidge. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first deployment like? out in the core and out officially offshore on a big ship. Yeah, I was assigned to uh, the ship, one of uh, Noah's previous ships called the Mount Mitchell mm-hmm. out of uh, Norfolk, Virginia. And we did do the, na- the, the nautical charting, uh, surveying for nautical charts, the, collected the data for the nautical charts. And we worked way offshore, actually offshore Florida. Mm-hmm. And when I say way offshore, I mean, we were a couple of hundred so miles offshore collecting the data mm-hmm. for the charting program. I mean, a couple hundred miles offshore, that's technically considered international waters, correct? That is correct. And NOAA got the data. Does NOAA, does NOAA share that data? Is that international data or is that pretty much just for... The public can get the data anytime they want. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's changed a little bit now, only from, from the standpoint that it's more digital and so it's probably ready more readily available than it was before mm-hmm. but uh but yeah the the public is is welcome to the data uh, all they have to do is just go to some of the new websites or to some of the new offices and make a request there is a, a national archives that the data goes to also that you can go to and take a look and download what you need mm. a lot of scientists do that yeah yeah, that's inter- That's really cool that that's so widely available and that's a lot of data to cover. So can, can you walk me through kind of what does a deployment look like and how long? Well, we would go out for what we call a 10 and 3. We were out for basically 10 days and then in port for three days. So we would leave on a Monday, come back in the following Friday or two Fridays uh, because we were out for almost two weeks. Mm-hmm. And then we would come back up, come back in uh, for three, four days in order to um, get new supplies and fuel and all those other kinds of things that you need and then back out again. And that was the way we worked for about eight months, out, nine months out of the year. Okay. And then in the winter, when we would come in, we would do um, bigger repairs uh, uh, on the ship, shipyards if it was necessary uh, more stuff with um, servicing the engines and 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 that kind of stuff that activity that took place in port 
over the winter because it took a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And how big are these boats that you're working on? <laughs> well, the the first one that I was on was a 230 foot, which is about the length of two football fields. Mm-hmm. So not very big. <laughs> not, not, very, not, not, not very big in the scheme of things when you think about navy ships and carriers and some of their destroyers and so forth and how big are some of those navy ships then you know i don't know what the length is but i know that when we would pull into if we went into a navy base mm-hmm. uh for one of our imports that uh you could pull up beside one of those ships and there was still from the stern of our ship to the stern of their ship, it was probably still another, maybe a whole ship length of ours. Those <laughs> ships are much, much bigger than ours. Oh, I think ours, if you looked at some of the Coast Guard vessels, uh, some of their mid-sized vessels would be more on, on, on par for what our vessel's uh, size was. Okay. Okay. Comparable with Coast Guard. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Some of the Coast Guard vessels are comparable, or our vessels were comparable to some of the size of the Coast Guard vessels. Okay, very cool. You did this hydrographic surveying, kind of collecting the information along the bottom, and that was your first deployment. And then when you come back in, wasn't it it's cyclical, right? Because you're not, how long were you doing these, like, basically nine-month-at-sea stints for? We were assigned to the ships for two years, and it's just kind of the rotation that uh, the general rotation for all of the officers. You're assigned to the ship for two years, and then you're assigned to an office job for uh, anywhere from three to four years, and then you go back out for another two years uh, to the ship. So it it gives you a little bit of respite uh, in that you, when you're in the office, you're pretty much working a five day week work week like uh, an average person as opposed to across all of your weekends mm-hmm. so it gives you a taste when you're on the ship do you miss the office and then when you're in the office you miss the ship is that how that works uh not really <laughs> <laughs> as a as a i don't know we you look forward to going to the ship because when you're on the ship you're you're out you're away from the um the total mundane, what we would call mundane uh-huh. kind of work. Things were always busy on a ship. There's always something going on. We're in the office. It's being in an office, sitting at a desk, doing what you need to get done. Lots of paperwork, lots of things that uh, just seem kind of boring after being out in an in a operational environment. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. <laughs> so it wasn't like a break. It was just, well, it was a break. It was a forced break. <laughs> yeah. It was a break, but it was just different, you know, and believe me, there, there, we always looked forward to going back to sea, but then once you got to sea, probably about halfway through the tour, you were looking forward to going back ashore again. Uh, like most folks, I guess we were never happy one way or the other. <laughs> <laughs> There's, there's pluses and minuses to each thing. That makes sense. Absolutely, there are. You didn't just do the hydrographic surveying for each deployment, though. I, I know you did a little bit of um, some fisheries and oceanographic research, and this is our second time recording this, and before you spoke about some of the tuna research. When I took command of one of the ships, uh, that particular ship did not do surveying. It did a lot of biological kind of work. Part of the project was to take a look at 
the bottom fish, it was a really a flounder that they would take a look at for age and for what they were eating because being on the bottom of the ocean or the estuaries that we were looking at, they could tell whether there was, they could look at it for pollution and that, that sort of thing is what they were trying to assess. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the other part of the work was to be offshore doing what we call the tuna dolphin surveys. Back in the 80s, most people probably remember, maybe not, but uh, they, there was always a commercial about Charlie the Tuna, and everybody talked about, or that commercials talked about sustainable tuna fishing and whether the tuna were safely caught. Mm-hmm. They were not, well, I, I guess I got ahead of myself there. When the fishermen fish for tuna, uh, they look for dolphins. Mm-hmm. The, the spinner dolphins use, uh, are in schools, fairly large schools. And if they would see a large school of dolphin, more than likely there was tuna below. So they would set their nets. And the problem came that the dolphins would drown in the nets. And that wasn't a good thing. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the fisheries or the tuna manufacturers and so forth were touting whether they're their particular brand of tuna, whether it was being caught in a safe manner for the dolphins. Mm -hmm. So it really wasn't about the tuna so much as it was about the dolphins. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. Yes. So you're saying that the fishermen would go out and they'd kind of look for these pods of dolphins. And in order to catch the fish, they would lay all these huge nets and the dolphins would inevitably get tangled in it because they can't escape the nets either. And so They would get their tuna, but they would also get dolphins. Yeah, and the dolphins would drown, unfortunately, because uh, they would get caught up in the nets. Gotcha. So the research board, your boat, or board your ship, looked at that, and that was kind of where some of the legislation came from for creating these rules against fishing like that, correct? That's correct. Because it's out in international waters, there's a little bit of controversy because, you know, some countries figured that they didn't need to be thoughtful about how they fished. Other countries thought they should be. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, that was more of um, a congressional thing to deal with. But uh, we did the, the research or the pull together the information for them to use in their decision-making process. Mm-hmm. Provided the science and the data. I love it. And that was, you were, you were the first woman commander of the NOAA Corps, and that was your first ship that you had command of. Is that correct? Yes, I was the first female to have command of a NOAA vessel. At the time, it didn't seem like it was it was a big deal for NOAA, and it certainly was a big deal. I don't want to make light of that because it was <laughs> a big deal. But from my pr- perspective, I just wanted to get my job done. You know, it was mm. it was um, one of these things where, well, I'm in the Corps. I, I'm, I'm a commander. You get to be a commander. You kind of expect to have a command mm-hmm. of a ship. And so, you know, it's kind of like, what's the big deal here? Even though intellectually, yes, I knew it was a big deal. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you just want to get on with the job. And and a lot of times it just made, uh, I, I didn't want to do anything that really made my crew feel like there was uh, anything so special going on, even though they knew that too. So mm. it, it made for an interesting time because they, I obviously did a lot of interviews because people wanted to talk to me about it. <laughs> and wanted to uh, put things out and so forth. 
but they also talked to the crew, which was, uh, in a way, I kind of felt badly for them because they didn't ask for that, but they didn't have any choice, but they put up with it, I guess. (laughs) Part of the job. (laughs) Yes, it was. It was part of the job and they did a good job. They were, they, the, the crew was, was excellent. I, I can't, can't complain at all. Awesome. So you were command of this ship and then you ultimately became the first woman admiral in the NOAA Corps as well. How did that come about? Well, kind of the same way. I mean, as you uh, go up the ranks and get promoted, once I made captain after the command of the ship, I made captain a couple or so years later. And the next step was admiral. And even though, as they tell you, the pyramid gets pretty small as you go up, everybody still wants the top job. I mean, who doesn't? Mm-hmm. So what they do is the leadership of NOAA takes a look at your personnel records and so forth. They set up like a board, an interview board, and they, they take a look at uh, your records and the information about you and your career and what you've done and your ability to lead people and do all those other things that um, sound so nice and wonderful in management. They select three or four, five people. And and it is sometimes three, sometimes it's up to five. They select to take, a, to do a final interview. And then they choose from that, that set of people for the admiral. And generally they select two. They select the one who's going to um, basically run everything. And then a deputy or a number two who is responsible uh, who actually runs the ships and the aircraft under you. Mm. You know, I got selected and it's, 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 it's interesting because everybody says you were the first, but you know, anything I did because I was one of the first women to come in the Corps. So just about anything I did was going to be a first. <laughs> so, you know, I thought that was kind of uh, an odd way to look at it, but you know, I understood, I I understood. And that was just the way it was. So five of four of us were, Five of us, I'm sorry, were uh, were interviewed, and I got selected as the um, the two star admiral, which is a senior person, and uh, one of the gentlemen got selected as the one star, and off we went. Awesome. What was what was your first deployment? I mean, as an admiral, and how does your desk job change as you get these promotions on a ship? That makes sense, but you said you're at you're in the office quite a bit too. How does that change? Well, what happens is um, you get a little bit, the job gets a little bit more difficult or a little bit more intense. You have more people that you're supervising. It's pretty much like going up a chain of command, whether it's uh, the civilian chain of command or whether it's officer chain of command. Got it. Yeah. And you're responsible for much more of the management. You're responsible for much more of the direction of the office that you're running. You're responsible for budgets. The budgets gets bigger as you go up the rank. Those are the kinds of things that change. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, your headaches get bigger and <laughs> your, your worry gets a little bit more. But, uh, you know, hopefully you've been um, prepared for that as you've gone up. Each job has gotten just a little bit more complicated, a little bit more difficult and a little bit more intense. Yep. So it's prepared you for that next step. Yes. Yeah, it's it's interesting the you know the parallels with just any promotion like you mentioned whether it's civilian or 
in an officer level, you know, when you get started, you're usually doing the field work and you're kind of more like boots on the ground. And then as you get all these promotions, you do, you get more people and more layers between you and, and that boots on the ground mentality. And you're still in it, but you're just in a different level. You have more people to manage. There's a lot more paperwork and yeah. And then you have to start worrying about the, the budget side. And uh, when you start getting responsibility for budgets and more people and you're dealing with more of the direction and, and the, the ideas of what, what needs to be done and um, looking to try to get into the future as far as things coming up and that sort of thing, you realize that um, it was pretty nice when you had the boots on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, you could truly just do your job and not worry about it as much. Absolutely. It was easier to complain about the the seniors when uh, you didn't know all of the details. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. How many times did you end up going out on your deployments? I went out um, assignment-wise for a full Mm -hmm. two-year assignment, two-and-a-half-year assignment as it was. Three times, four times, three times, I think. But I did a number of what we call temporary duty. So if somebody was wanted to take leave and they needed extra people or another mm-hmm. person out, you'd go out for, you know, a couple of weeks or a month or whatever it was that they that you needed to do. And that was all based on the length of the the cruises that the ship was doing, whether it was a two week cruise or whether it was a month cruise or whether it was a one week cruise actually. What was one of your favorite cruises or assignments? Wow. Well, I guess I have to say as command. I mean, it's always nice to be the boss, isn't it? <laughs> um, so if you got to go, as we as we used to say, if you got to go to sea, you might as well go as the boss as well. There you go. Rather than down down below, you know. So <laughs> so I, I would have to say the command truly was. Uh, it was an experience, and it it was good. It was good. I I enjoyed that. Okay, and that was that was the one you were in the Pacific Ocean, correct? That's correct. We were in the Pacific. The home port for the ship was in Seattle. Okay, that's awesome. One of my very favorite, and this is going to kind of tack on to what I just asked you, but one of my very favorite questions to ask is, "What is your favorite field story or stories to tell?" And this could be like the most amazing day out in the field, or this could be just a day where everything went wrong and it makes a really great story now. (laughs) Well, the day that I remember the most, and and there is one out of probably my entire career, probably, and probably because I I did have command when we were doing um, the Eastern Tropical Pacific cruises, which is the uh, dolphin cruises. One evening, all of a sudden, the alarm started going off and everybody started running from one place to the other. Of course, I went to the bridge to figure out what was going on. And it turned out that there was water coming into the engine, being pumped into the engine room. They didn't know right away why. And, you know, you're sitting there trying to make sure that you don't, that you don't lose power and not that I could stop us from losing power, but making sure that we did the right reaction if power was lost. And it turned out that it was a generator, the intake to the generator. And the water that was coming in was coming in because a hose clamp, a 50 cent hose clamp vibrated loose and came off. (laughs) 
and it's in the engine room. So, and the way the engine room was set up, the concern was we could have lost all the electricity because that salt water, mm-hmm. you know, with the ship moving back and forth was splashing like crazy and it could have gotten in the surfboard. I mean, it could have been a real mess. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that is really interesting is that that was one of our scientific cruises. And we had uh, this, the, the bunch of scientists that came out were always griping about the number of drills that we had <laughs> every week. And why did we have to deal with the drills and why did they have to go to and participate in the drills or not necessarily participate. They had stations that they had to go to and they wanted, you know, why do we have to do this? And why do we have to wear closed toed shoes and why, you know, just why, 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 why? And they, they just like to, to grouse. And uh, when that happened and they realized that alarms were going off on the ship and they realized that people were not stopping to talk to them, that they were in serious mode to get to the bottom of it and make sure that they were where they needed to be and to do what we've drilled for. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden they were like, Oh my God. And um, when I came down off the bridge, I saw one of them sitting there with his life jacket on fastened up the way it's supposed to be fastened up, which we always had a hard time getting them to do. <laughs> and he was sitting on a corner kind of like with this very kind of frightened look on his face, you know, it was almost like this is for real. And, and I think it became the realization that no matter how well you swim, he was not going to swim to the nearest point of land, which was about three days away. You know, mm-hmm. shift wise, it was three days away. <laughs> yeah. It was one of these things where uh, the the reality of why we do this hit full force that night. I did not have another problem with them doing drills or anything when we got ready to um to have you know any kind of activity they were there they did what they were supposed to do they didn't grouse and complain anymore and i i thought how now it's pretty funny it back at the time it was happening of course it was not um amusing at all no but now you look back on it after so many years and it's like yeah that woke them up pretty well yeah That'll do it. <laughs> yeah, and it did. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like the thought so, of the ship sinking to be like, oh, that's why those drills are important. <laughs> uh, yes, it's it's like this is this is why we do what we do. But at any rate, that was that was significant. It's I, when I think about it now, I, it's it's like it happened yesterday. Is that vivid a remembrance yeah. for me? I can imagine that would have a huge impact. Your command of the ship and it's you're taking on water and. <laughs> That's that would not good. A, yeah, that's not good. Chips like to, yeah that that would definitely make a impact in anybody's brain. I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't make your day. That's it's not one of those things that makes your day. <laughs> it makes a good sea story later. It, it does. It does. <laughs> Most of your shipboard experience though was doing these hydrographic surveys, and I don't think we talked about it today. But we had mentioned when I talked to you before you kind of went in a little bit more detail what a hydrographic survey looked like. And I think your analogy was kind of like mowing the lawn. Like you had a set swath of sea that you were setting, you were going to monitor and you made these points. Could you explain a little bit more about like what that looked like? Yeah. uh, The surveys were laid out. The areas that we were going to, to work was laid out by the, the office and 
what we would do is go out, depending on the scale of the survey, whether it was a one to 20,000 or whether it was a one to 40,000 or whether it was a one to 5,000, depending on how wide the lines were. The lines were basically straight lines, uh, either going north or south or east to west, depending on um, a number of other things, uh, terrain and so forth. You would go out, you would lay these lines out, and then we would do what we call mowing the lawn. You go up one line, across, down the other line, across, back up the other line. So it's just like um, when someone mows, mows their lawn. And the equipment that we used basically detected the length of time it took a sound wave to go out, hit the bottom of the ocean, and return. And that would give you the depth at that particular point. And that's what we did. 11 days out doing mowing the lawn and then three days in port. And that that data then was co uh, collected. We would process it apply whatever corrections needed to be applied to it. And then that's what went into the office and eventually looked at by the cartographers and then onto the nautical chart. Mm -hmm. I have to think that you being a cartographer before you went out on the ship probably helped quite a bit because you knew what they were looking for and kind of how to put it in terms that would be most helpful. That's correct. I, it was kind of um, a blessing, but a curse also, because <laughs> their expectation was, you know what we're looking for. Why did you do this? <laughs> so it was, it was kind of interesting sometimes as you made the corrections to the chart, made the corrections to the data to go in. I, I don't think cartographers, I don't think are ever really satisfied with what with what comes in, they, they can work with it. And it's actually not bad data or anything like that. It's just that they like to uh, have the last word, I think. <laughs> That's funny. How did the technology change to collect all of this data? Well, when I was out there, the data was what we call a sounding and it was one point and a time on that point. Mm -hmm. Now, if you take a look at some of the data that comes in, they actually can do a swath and they can actually cover practically the entire bottom. An example would be if there was a wreck. Mm -hmm. Before, when I was doing the surveys, you might get a point on that wreck and you'd have to come back and try to figure out uh, what the highest point was. If okay. you've got something like a swath system that they use now, you can actually see it's almost like a copy machine mm -hmm. uh, as it goes across whatever picture you're you're scanning. It's you start to see the picture come to life, mm -hmm. and that's the way they do it now. It actually gives you a picture of the wreck, and it's pretty fascinating. It's absolutely amazing the detail that they can get with with the new equipment. Yeah, technology is absolutely amazing. Because of computers and the upgrades to computers and, and the way computers are now, it can actually also process more of that information. It can handle uh, larger bundles of data than mm -hmm. the systems that we were using could. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's um, a whole different ballgame than it was when I was out there. Mm. You know, and that really wasn't that long ago to kind of think about how much that's changed. You went from taking like one point and trying to kind of just beam down and take point, 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 figure out which one's the highest one to 
you just send a whole, you just get an entire picture and swoop. It's amazing. And that actually happened probably within the first uh, 15 years, because when I went in in the seventies, that was the way we were doing it. And by um, the mid eighties, the sonar systems and the swap, the, the um, swash systems that there were being developed, uh, they were kind of crude, but they were still better than what I had. And now today it's even more incredible what they can do with them. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, as we kind of wrap up here, I like to leave the audience with a conservation ask to go forth and take from each episode. Uh, what would you like the audience to take from our com- conversation today? I would say debris. Marine debris is probably one of the biggest problems I see. The trash that we take to the beach or that just gets into um, the water system mm-hmm. and ends up in the ocean. It, it just kills so many animals. And it's only because we are not paying attention and we don't take our trash with us. You know, just the fishing line that we, we leave, that monofilament line, you can't see it. And the animals either eat it or get tangled up in it and it kills them. Mm-hmm. And you know, any other trash, I mean, just a six pack of um, the, the plastic rings that holds a six pack of soft drinks or whatever together. A fish gets caught in one of those those circles, can't get out, and it eventually strangles them to death because as they grow, this thing is not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And it, it just is unnecessary because what we take with us, we should bring back. You know, we shouldn't leave it just because the ocean is as big as it is. It's not not a good thing. Yep. Yeah, that's always been a kind of a pet peeve with me is just leaving your trash where it does the most harm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Take take only pictures and leave only footprints. Yes, exactly. You know, the, the, the footprints will be washed away with the with the waves and that's the way it should be. It, you mm-hmm. shouldn't. Uh, leave the rest of it because it's, it's, it doesn't belong there. Absolutely. Yep. Did you see a lot of marine debris during your time offshore? What were some of the things that you saw? Uh, we saw lots of stuff because we were way offshore. You would see pallets sometimes. Mm. And it was uh, maybe something that during a storm might have blown off of a ship. Mm-hmm. And those pallets are floating along. And it's really kind of interesting because if they're out there long enough, they build up their own ecosystem, mm-hmm. i.e. the barnacles grow or something grows on the bottom of the the pallet and then the little fish start and then the bigger fish and then the bigger fish and then the bigger fish mm-hmm. because each group spawns the next larger group. And so you end up with your own little ecosystem of um, just right around that, that pallet. But you see, um, you know, you see all kinds of stuff unfortunately, all kinds of stuff that people just jettison because they don't want to have to carry it. Mm-hmm. Because it's not fun to to have to uh, figure out what to do with all the trash and all of the stuff that the waste that comes from a ship that we put in the trash can and then take it out to the street and the trash guy comes and picks it up. Right. We have to actually do something with it. And the big ships, the, the uh, container ships, and all of the large ships, the I mean, all of the ships, Navy ships, everybody, even the cruise ships. But the cruise ships do a lot of taking their stuff back ashore because, you know, they don't want to 
food up everything either because it wouldn't be good for for their business so right. it's um it's an interesting interesting problem but i i think and i i don't want to necessarily blame any one group mm-hmm. but uh you know you you got the the larger ships that are being reviewed and always questioned by the coast guard and by federal authorities where you have the smaller vessels that are not does not have the same oversight Mm. so they tend to be a little bit more loose and sometimes they're having such a good time that they don't think about oh don't put that over the side don't don't throw that over the side you know kind Mm -hmm. of thing it's a mindset that you have to get into and think about and consciously think about what you're doing yeah absolutely Absolutely. Did you see a lot of balloons by any chance? Uh, no, I did not. Okay. I did. I did not. That's not to say they weren't out there, but I did not. I think you s- probably see most of the balloons closer in to the shoreline. Yeah, I've been like twenty miles offshore and collected balloons. <laughs> like, I, I, I would. I can see that. I, <laughs> I can see that. Because if you let them go, um, you know, they, they travel a long ways in the current, the, the wind currents and so forth before they lose enough air to actually uh, fall back to the earth. Right. I, I don't know. I personally hate balloons. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I do. I just think that, that I, I realize that there's a community and a market for it. And, the you know, there are manufacturers and so forth that are affected by and make money from selling these things but I, I just it's one of those things that I just don't buy mm-hmm. don't want anybody to give me any just because of the way they are and and um, the trash that it leaves behind yeah because inevitably people let them go and mm-hmm. once you let them go you have absolutely no control over what happens right right I feel the same way about them and a lot of people think I'm a party pooper, but I'm like, I, I found too many of them on the beach, in the ocean. Like I said, I found them 20 miles offshore. I find them in parks. I'm like, I find them everywhere. They're not, I don't yeah. love them. <laughs> They're not my favorite. It's, it's frustrating because people get them, they, they love them, but then what do you do with them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and almost inevitably, they never pop them and put them in the trash. They let them go. Mm-hmm. Yep. Balloons. If you get them, yeah. dispose of them responsibly. That's our other ask. Marine debris, but make sure you're disposing those balloons responsibly. That's right. But they become, they can become marine debris too. So we don't want to deal with that. Yeah. There's this statistic out there that 80% of marine debris is actually from land. So absolutely, yeah. absolutely what we do on land affects what's going out into the ocean. So that's a really great ask and a really great point to just be aware of what, what waste you're producing and where it's going. Wonderful. This was really awesome chatting with you. But I tell you that what I would suggest to people, if they're truly interested in what NOAA is doing, what the NOAA Corps is doing, mm-hmm. that they should go to the NOAA website and they can find all kinds of information and they can find all sorts of uh, contact information for different offices, for whatever they are specifically interested in. Mm-hmm. And uh, those folks can give them a lot more current information than I can mm-hmm. at this point. But mm-hmm. uh, the website is just full of good information. I, I go there periodically just to see what's, what's new. Mm-hmm. 
retired, but you're not out. Can't let it go. No, I can't <laughs> let it go. I, you know, <laughs> it's a part of me now after 31, 32 years, it's, it's hard to just let something go that you, that you really enjoy, uh, you know, anything that you're really enjoyed and that you're passionate about, it never leaves you. And so that's, that's kind of where I am. That's awesome. I love that you're still keeping tabs on things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so. so much for chatting with me again. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. No problem. I enjoyed it. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.